and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Whoa. Um, that's some good worship, amen? Like, whoa. Um, and you know, that's exactly what good worship will make you say. Um, when God shows up in the middle of our worship, it's amazing it's jaw-dropping, it's spectacular, but true worship is so much more than a spectacle, yeah? Like when we're truly in the presence of God, our woe changes to woe really quick. Like the W-H-O-A, woe of awestruck wonder becomes W-O-E, woe is me, I am ruined for I am a sinful man and I live amongst the sinful people and my eyes have seen the one true God. Like I am so unworthy, to be in your presence, Lord. When we recognize that we're in the presence of God, we realize just how, <laughs> just how short we fall, right? And woe, this right here, this is the proper response. So if I had to give my sermon a title for today, it would be just that, woe. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at the seven woes that Jesus pronounced upon the Pharisees um, and religious leaders in Matthew 23. So if you want to go ahead and start turning there right now, Matthew 23 is where we're going to be. Um, But before I dive into our text for the day, I just want to take a second. I want to introduce myself. I am Jeff Lormer. I am your worship and spiritual growth pastor here. Hello, friends. Um... If we've never met before, I uh, would love to meet you today after service. So stick around, grab a donut um, and some coffee. And for those of you who are new to Bentry, I just want to uh, echo what, Hecker, what, Heather, <laughs> Hecker, what Heather said earlier today, um, and that is a 10 starting point. It's coming up after the 11 a.m. service. Uh, if you're interested in Bentry or you want to go take that step from just being an attender to being a part of the family, um, we encourage you um, Come to starting point, get to know us a little bit better. We'd love to get to know you better. Or uh, for you ladies out there that are new to Bent Tree um, or just looking to connect, we'd love to have you at our women's brunch next Saturday. Um, I know that's what I got my wife for Mother's Day. Um, cheapest Mother's Day present ever. Dudes do the same. Five bucks. Um, you can sign up. btc.churchcenter.com. So that being said, uh, let's dive into our scripture. If you guys wouldn't mind standing with me as I read this, this is going to be Matthew 23, verses 13 through 22, uh, 13 through 32, excuse me, seven woes uh, on the teachers and the law and the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, yet you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, what's greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And yet you also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, what's greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by by heaven, swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and dish, and then the out, or first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be also clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. The Pharisees, they heard these seven woes, and they did. They went on, and they completed what their ancestors had started. They murdered the Son of God. But the blood they spilt... What is that for us? That's our redemption. Amen? You guys can take your seats um, and let's pray. Lord Jesus, your blood was spilled to forgive us of our sins. So we just, we take a second, we slow down, we thank you for your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we know your love for us. So help us now to hear your correction for us. Help us to put ourselves in the shoes of these Pharisees and religious leaders and show us where we're woefully in need of your forgiveness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Um, So to be kind of honest, like I read these seven woes and I get it. Like I get where the religious leaders are coming from. I get why they killed Jesus. Like to their face, uh, Jesus called them, uh, what do I have here? Uh, horrible teachers, spineless hypocrites, mouths full of death, and hearts full of trash. Jesus is just offensive. As he tells the truth to these guys, um, and it's really easy for me to put myself in their shoes because, like, um, of these religious leaders, because, like, I are one. I am a religious leader, right? Um, so as we put my, myself in these shoes, like, it makes me think of a time when I was disrespected uh, by one of my students back when I was a teacher. And I know some of you guys are like, you're kidding me. Kids disrespect their teachers in schools nowadays? What does this world come to? Um, the audacity, right? Anyway, I remember I was teaching Spanish uh, back in Kersey, Colorado. These were quite a few years ago. And I had this one student who got up right in the middle of my lecture and he said, Hey, F.A., like, why should we even listen to you? Whoa, shots fired, right? Um, the classroom got dead quiet. Like, you've been in my classroom. My classroom never gets quiet. This time, it was, like, so quiet. I'd never been quiet this before because everyone was just waiting to see, like, how I was going to respond. Like, would I clap back and destroy this kid? Would I send him to the office? Or would I just, like, sit there and let him blatantly disrespect me? So, what would you do in this situation? What would you do if someone called you out like this? Seriously, I want you to answer this question in your mind. Um, some of you are teachers, principals. You, you've had to answer this question before, right? Um, but answer this question in your mind. What would you do? Um, like if someone took something you're really proud of, um, like maybe your greatest accomplishment, something you've worked really hard on, and imagine them calling it trash. Imagine them saying, your life's work is trash. 
Um, for you dudes, imagine some rando just coming into your shop or your workshop or whatever and saying, hey, everything you've worked so hard on, it's kind of junky, you know. Or uh, for you stay-at-home moms, I want you to imagine right now some stranger comes into your house and he comes up to you and he says, hey, everything you've done to raise your kids, like, it's wrong, right? It's total garbage. Or students, right? We're about to that season. Imagine walking across the stage at graduation and instead of getting your diploma, all right, some guy gets up, gets the microphone and says, hey, this is meaningless. All the accomplishments here, worthless. What would you do in this situation? What would you want to do? Right, this is what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. He's calling them out on their life's work. What would you do if you were a Pharisee? Well, anyway, going back to my story, uh, as this kid called me out, I stopped everything, and I took it as a teaching moment. So I took five minutes to defend my profession to a group of bored teenagers. I told them Spanish is easily the most important class they'll ever take, and that they should be asking their calculus teacher that question, because, like, ain't nobody ever used calculus before, right? But everyone wishes they learn Spanish in high school, so sit down, shut up, and learn something, all right, kid? I don't know. I, judging my response, I probably could have handled it better. Um, but here's the deal. Every one of us, at one point or another, is going to have to respond to correction in our lives. I just don't want you to have to respond to that correction before you get to heaven. Or, or when you get to heaven. I want you to respond to it before. So, I guess I just want to give a disclaimer before I really get into this message. Um, I've delivered uh, a few messages here at Bentree. Um, I remember delivering one message it was on honoring Caesar, right? And I had to do this right before a mask mandate. It was like, oh, gulp. Um, that was not an easy one to deliver. I'll tell you right now, though, this is a harder one for me because, like, preachers love delivering the blessings, right? When Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. And it's fun to give those blessings. But here in one of Jesus' last sermons in the book of Matthew, he doesn't give seven blessings. He gives seven curses. And so what are we to do with that? Are we to put ourselves completely in the shoes of the Pharisees? Well, if you're a believer in Christ, no, you're not like a total Pharisee. But, like, we can all exhibit Pharisaical behaviors at times. And thus, we need to hear these woes, all right? We need to hear them, especially if we're doing one of these behaviors. We need to be corrected, all right, friends? So, that being said, um, I know the sermon might come off as just kind of harsh, I get it. But it's the Word of God, and we don't skip over the hard passages here at Bentry, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, when the Pharisees were judged by Jesus, like me, they responded pretty poorly. Um, and I get why, because I too, I wanted to destroy that kid that insulted my occupation. And I'm pretty sure the Pharisees wanted to destroy Jesus because guess what? That's what they turned around and did, right? Um, they went and killed him right after he called him out. So I've got to ask this question before I get into the seven woes, before I go through each one of them, I want to ask you a question. How are you going to respond if Jesus calls you out today, will you harden your heart like the Pharisees? Seriously, what if the turntables turn? No, that's not how. Anyway, what if, what if Jesus turns over some of your tables today? All right, as you were, you were going through these seven woes. Um, I know how we want to respond as someone calls us out. We want to clap back or we want to walk away and forget this whole thing ever happened. But ignoring God's correction will mean a truly woeful ending for us, a woeful experience in front of his throne when we're judged at the end of our days. So friends, um, we got to humble ourselves. We got to render our hearts to him and we've got to let him correct us today. So I'm praying that you're going to let God use these seven woes as a teaching moment for you. So um, my first question before we get into the seven woes of Matthew, it's this right here. 
And I want you to just take a second and wrestle with this question right now. How hard is your heart? Are you ready to receive correction today? Or is your heart hard? How are you approaching the word of God today? I think this is a good question to ask. So, um, will you respond with defensiveness? Or will you hear his correction? Um, And I guess another maybe follow-up is, do you desire for God to correct you? Um, Because woe to you if you don't. Let's dive into the seven woes. Um, And I guess just to give you a little context before we get into the seven woes, uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's the week before uh, he's crucified, and he spent the whole week answering questions, um, and he's been teaching in the temple courts, and he's rightly responded to every riddle that the Pharisees have thrown at him, but now he's on the attack, all right? And he calls out the Pharisees and the religious leaders with seven curses. These are woes upon their toxic teaching. And this is going to be, this teaching right here is the final nail in his coffin, um, it's going to be the, saw, uh, the straw that breaks their camel's back. Um, after this moment, after these seven woes, the Pharisees are going to stop at nothing to kill Christ. And his first woe is explosive. Let's read it right now. Verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces, and you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. The first thing Jesus does as he calls out the religious leaders is he's telling them, uh, you're not going to enter heaven, all right? Plain and simple. Like, there's no dancing around the touchy nature of their eternal destiny. He says it plain as day. You will not enter heaven. The door's going to be shut in your face, just like you shut the door in other people's faces. Go to hell. Go directly to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And here's the thing. I think one of the greatest tragedies in the American church is that we dance around the topic of heaven and hell. No one wants to talk about this, right? Um, But notice, this is the first thing Jesus mentions as he's calling out the Pharisees. And yet for most preachers, right, hell is like the last thing they'll talk about. They'll save that for their very final point. It's Jesus's first point, right? Um, It's funny. I remember being taught as a young preacher to not say the word hell on stage. I remember being taught to say, like, eternal separation from God, But Jesus says, like, guys, it's one or the other. It's heaven or hell. And it's definitely not heaven for you guys. So, I guess the first question that I want to ask you today, Bent Tree Church, is this right here. Do you know the way to heaven? If I could capitalize it, this would be a capital W. Do you know the capital W way to heaven? Because when I'm talking about the way to heaven, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the exclusive, the one and only way to heaven. So, dear Christian, do you know the way to heaven? No one in here knows. Do you know the way to heaven? Yeah, a lot of you do. So here's the, I guess, (laughs) the follow-up. If you know the way to heaven, why aren't you pointing everyone you know to it? Like, guys, if you're not talking about Jesus openly with everyone you can, you're doing what the Pharisees are doing. You're shutting the door to heaven in people's faces. Like, by your inaction, you're indirectly saying to an unbelieving world, go to hell. So woe to you if you, like the Pharisees, don't point people to Christ, the capital W way to heaven. I'm telling you, just a little pastoral advice here. The best thing you can do is just speak openly and honestly with the people you love about heaven and hell, just like Jesus does. And don't do anything to hide the way to heaven or this woe is meant for you. Um, and people will ask me all the time. They'll say, Jeff, how can God judge people 
that don't know Jesus is the way to heaven. And oftentimes, especially if they're believers, I'll answer them with a question. I'll answer. When they ask, hey, how will God judge people um, that don't know Jesus is the way to heaven? I'll ask them in reply. I'll say, well, how do you think God will judge the people that do know the way to heaven and don't tell anyone? Like, how will God judge you if you know the way to heaven and yet you shut the door in other people's faces? Hear me now, Bent Tree Church, our first woe of the morning. You guys ready with that? Let's see if we can do this. Your first woe of the morning. Nope. Nope, wait for it. Your first woe of the morning. Third time's a charm, all right, all right. Your first woe of the morning, Bent Tree Church. Ah, whatever. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll scrap it. Um, woe to you who are so sure you're going to have... There it is. I got a bell. Thank you. Thanks for lightening that up, because this is pretty heavy. All right, um, they're just playing with me back there. I love it. Those guys, by the way, give a hand for a tech team. Aren't they awesome? You guys rock. I appreciate you. Woe to you who are so sure you're going to heaven when you die but don't care about all the people that aren't. Woe to you who ignore the people around you going through hell and who are going to hell after they die. The second woe of Christ here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you uh, have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Um, And this is, by the way, this is probably the most interesting woe to me, because I'm not used to seeing Pharisees as the type to go out and evangelize. Like, you don't see a lot of those guys doing that. But apparently, uh, Pharisees would try to convert people to their religion. They'd go to great lengths, apparently, to do so, and sometimes they were even successful. So what's interesting about this woe is how Jesus corrects them. Like, notice, he doesn't criticize them for sharing their beliefs. No, that's what Jesus expects. He expects you to share something if you believe in it. What Jesus criticizes them for is what they're converting them to. Jesus' criticism of them is like, all right, your religion, you've got to realize it's making you bad people, and you're making the people that follow you even worse. Um, Notice how he associates them with hell right there. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying, your religion is making you into mean, nasty, hellish people, and you're making the people that follow you twice as bad. So I guess the question as it pertains to us is, does your faith make you and others miserable? Does it make you a hellish type of person? Answer that question right now for yourself. The way you follow God, your faith, does it make you miserable? Does it make the people around you miserable? Are you worse off for what you believe in? And are the people worse off around you because of your beliefs? Guys, if being a Christian doesn't make you more joyful, I think you're doing it wrong. Like seriously, if following Jesus is making you and the people around you miserable, you're doing it wrong. And I see this happen in one of two ways. Um, I guess, firstly, I see a lot of miserable Christians out there because they're so focused on the overwhelming depravity of man that they forget about the overwhelming joy we have in Christ. They forget about how amazing grace is. Like, guys, God saved you. And that's worth celebrating. Amen? Like, you can be glad because he has made you glad. In his presence, there is not just a little bit of joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. So, if you're not joy-filled, if you're miserable, it's probably because you're not in his presence. And secondly, I guess the second way I see Christians that are miserable in their faith is when I see someone who's lukewarm. That is someone who's thinking, I can just add a little scoop of Jesus onto my already crazy schedule and he'll make everything better. And that just flat out don't work. 
guys. Like, Jesus isn't something you can add on to your life. He's not like an upgrade. Like, ooh, I'll take a little Jesus with my air conditioning. No, it doesn't work because Jesus is life. You need to clear your schedule for him. You need to budget your time and your energy and resources around him and his desires because that's where life is found. And if you don't, I've seen it too many times, your faith is going to get choked out by your desires for success and the things of this world. And here's the thing. If you try to live with one foot on earth and one foot in heaven, you'll be miserable and your kids will be miserable. And everyone that tries to follow God like you will be miserable too. Because those who are torn between heaven and earth won't enjoy either. So hear me now, Bent Tree Church, woe number two. There we go, guys. Woe number two. Woe to you who love seeing people converted to your hellish brand of faith. Woe to you whose faith is making you miserable and whose followers are just as miserable as you. Woe number three. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple (laughs) is bound by that oath. You blind fools, what's greater the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. What's greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. Who's the one who dwells in the temple? Should be a capital O right there, right? That's Jesus, or that's God. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. I guess, how do you feel about this third woe? Do you guys understand it? Um, I honestly, I didn't understand it initially because we don't make a lot of like religious vows nowadays in our society, save for maybe like our wedding vows. We don't make a lot of, we don't swear a lot of vows um, in our modern day society. But back in those days, you guys got to understand people would swear by the temple and by the altar all the time. Like if they committed some sort of sin, they'd go to Jerusalem, they'd beg to God for forgiveness, and then um, they'd make some sort of sacrifice, swearing they'd never do it again. Right? Or maybe they'd have like a sick family member or something. So they'd take some, uh, their gift to the temple and they'd swear by that gift and they'd say, um, God, if you heal my sick relative, I'll give you more. Or people back in those days, maybe they were trying to achieve some sort of goal. So they'd go to the temple, make a sacrifice, and they'd swear they'd give more if God just gave them favor. Are you starting to see what this like swearing culture was like? It was kind of quid pro quo. It looked like devoting time and energy and money all right, to God in order to get God to do what they wanted him to do, which is kind of a messed up way to look at God, right? Like looking at him like he's some sort of vending machine. Um, but even worse, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were like leveraging this way of thinking. They're saying, all right, little peasant, if you want God to hear you, you can't just swear to him. You got to put your money where your mouth is. So now you get why this is horrible, right? Like the Pharisees, the religious teachers, they're teaching that you could get God to do what you wanted to do, all right, by giving them all your money, which sounds kind of familiar, right? Like it sounds like the televangelists and the prosperity preachers that tell you to sow a seed, all right, and God will bless you according to how much you gave them. And you know what else it sounds like? It sounds like the Roman Catholic Church that used to sell indulgences based on how much money you gave them. And this kind of teaching, this one that says God can be bought, it like, it sickened Jesus. And you guys get this though, don't you? 
right? You guys get the heresies of the prosperity gospel. And I think that's why you're here at Bentry and you're not one of those churches because you understand God can't be bought. So I guess I want to ask you, where does this woe land with us? Notice really quickly that Jesus makes a big deal about like the sovereignty of God and who sits on God's throne. It's him, him alone. And Jesus, I think, wants to make sure here that we don't think we can become sovereign in our own lives with enough money. Again, I'll say this again, you cannot gain sovereignty over your own life with enough money. Um, the greatest lie from the pits of hell is that you, the postmodern 21st century American Christian, you can have total autonomy in your life if you just make enough money. Um, and I know for a fact this is uh, a lie that a lot of people in this church we, we wrestle with. We think that, oh, if I just get a different job, or if I become my own boss, or if I have enough passive income, then I'll arrive at this place called financial peace to do whatever I want. And it's just not true. It's a lie from the pits of hell. So here's the question for you to wrestle with, church. Do you think money will solve your problems? Do you think financial security is going to solve all your, all your issues? Because money, you got to realize money won't get God to do what you want. And having a better budget or financial situation, it's good, but it won't solve your problems because Christ has already solved your greatest problem in Christ. Um, excuse me. God has already solved your greatest problem in Christ. You had a sin debt, insurmountable, that you can never pay, and he paid that on the cross with his son's blood. So now seriously, take a second, evaluate. How much trust are you putting in money? Do you think that having more money will set you free? Do you think that more money will get God to do what you want? How much trust are you putting in your financial position over your eternal position? Bentree Church, hear my third woe for the morning. Woe to you who love your budgets and your strategic plans more than God. Woe to you who care about money or finances more than God, who is sovereign over both. Because God cannot be bought. All right? He is the one that sits on heaven's throne. Sovereign over all. And you can't earn his favor with any amount of money or good deeds. So you better make sure your eternal position is secure. Rather than worrying about your financial position. On to woe number four. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth, a tithe, of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Um, and this is an easy woe to understand. This is a woe for religious people that have their priorities in the wrong order. Because you see, the Pharisees, they were so meticulous about the way they honored God with their income and all their earnings. And Jesus actually, you'll notice, he, he commends them, right? Like, they would tithe on their herb garden. They would, out of all ten leaves that they'd pick off their mint plant or whatever, they'd set one aside for the temple, which is really great for them. Um, but I, I guess just a note from our financial team here. Um, if you're growing cumin in your garden, please do not feel like you need to tie that to the church. Like we, all, all seriousness, we do not need our uh, offering boxes smelling like curry, okay? So appreciate it. Just go sell it at a farmer's market and then tithe on that. Um, but seriously, the Pharisees, they were doing good in this. They practiced the latter, all right? Um, they were trying to be as precise as possible 
to give God everything he asked for. And, and honestly, we should do the same as the Pharisees in this. We should make sure we're base 10 givers on every bit of like random income that we come across. We should tithe pre-tax. And we shouldn't neglect any small part of the law. Notice that Jesus commends the Pharisees for practicing the latter. And in doing so, he affirms that we should tithe too. You know, a lot of people say that the New Testament doesn't affirm tithing, but Jesus does so right there. Practice the latter. But at the same time, he also condemns the Pharisees for paying so much attention to their tithe and their minor details that they neglected the greater parts of the law. They were being unjust, unforgiving, cruel, and exacting, cold-blooded, hard-hearted, unfeeling. Here's the deal. They were picking and choosing which rules to follow, right? And if you didn't follow their set of rules, they were ruthless, And here's the thing is I wish we could say that we religious people, we've changed over the last 2,000 years, but we haven't. At times, we're still just as cruel and unforgiving and judgmental, and we ignore the rules that apply to us, while at the same time, we'll condemn others for not following the rules that we highlighted in in our rule book. Guys, we can't pick and choose, is what I'm saying. We can't ignore the rules that would force us to change our behavior, and we can't abuse the rules that allow us to judge people without mercy. So here's another question for you. It's question number four out of seven. Do you pick and choose which rules to follow? And this is a really hard one if you're looking at a mirror to like evaluate in yourself. Because here's the thing is, we like seeing the rules we like to follow, and we just subconsciously overlook the rules that we don't. Right? But you've got to ask yourself, and I would ask you to do this with your Bible in hand, like, God, am am I prioritizing one command over another? Am I following God's command to live at peace with others at the expense of, like, actually sharing the gospel and following that command? Um, Do I follow God's command to be generous to others at his command for me to provide for my own family? Do I follow God's command to honor my own body, but yet I don't follow his command to honor his body, the church? Do you follow God's command to be in his word, but do you ignore his command to also be in community? Ask yourself, is there any of God's commands that you're prioritizing at the expense of another? Are you ignoring some of the more important matters of the law in regards to your pursuit to be righteous with the minutia of God's law? Guys, we can't forget the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. But we also can't forsake living intentionally and practicing the minor details that God calls us to. So I want to summarize, I guess, let me summarize this with my fourth woe of the day. Here we go, guys. Woe to you who know every last letter of the law, but somehow ignore every rule that would inconvenience you or actually require you to change your behavior. Woe to you who pick and choose. Woe to you who pick and choose, because seriously, if you don't follow all that Jesus commands you to do, how do you determine which things are worth following and which things aren't? Doesn't that make you the judge over God's word? And that's dangerous ground to be on, right? Elevating yourself over the word of God. Woe to you that make yourself the judge of God's word. Woe number five. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Um, You know, full transparency. This woe is the one that hits me hardest, um, more than any of the other woes. Because, like, look at verse 25 here. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, 
right? And I look really, whatever, presentable today. I wore a collared shirt. How nice is that? But inside, full of greed and self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, it's easily the hardest sin for me to wrestle with in my life. Like, come on, the world applauds you when you treat yourself, you know? Um, You guys know what I'm talking about, treat yourself? Uh, For those of you who don't know the reference, there's this TV show a few years back that had a couple characters. They take a day once a year um, to indulge themselves, right? To do whatever they wanted, and their catchphrase was, you guys know it, treat yourself, right? You want to sit around all day and watch movies? Treat yourself. You want to skip mowing the lawn and go play golf? Treat yourself. You want to buy that thing you know you can't afford on credit? Ah, Treat yourself. Oh, it's cute, right? But so many of us, and I'm included here, we indulge ourselves every day, not just one day a year. For a lot of us, every day is a treat yourself kind of day. Um, And I get it. Like, you work hard, so when you come home at night, it's just easier to put the kids on a device, order some DoorDash, right, and binge yourself to sleep. But you've got to see how strongly Jesus condemns this kind of lifestyle. A lifestyle focused on greed and self-indulgence, a lifestyle focused on convenience and consumption. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Believers that would live to treat themselves, Jesus calls us hypocrites. He would call us hypocrites if we claim him and yet do not take up our cross daily to follow him. So friends, that means that on the daily as a Christian, you're going to have to say no to self-indulgence. And my fifth question of the day, do you live to be served or do you live to serve? Or to reverse that, because that's how it's on the screen. Do you live to serve or do you live to be served? Um, Mark 10, 45 says that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. And, you know, it's easy to say you die for someone. But living for Christ and grinding daily for him and his kingdom, even when you're tired and weary, it's hard, but it's what God calls us to. And if we don't follow him in that, he calls us hypocrites. So you've got to let God change. I shouldn't say you. We've got to let God change us from the inside out. We've got to let him change our self-indulgent hearts. Um, and here's the thing that I've learned in my years at church, a lot of times he'll use serving to do that, like getting on a serving team. Um, and so if you've been on the fence about serving at church, I would just encourage you, now's the time to sign up, all right? It's time to get out of your comfort zone. It's time to serve faithfully because you can, too can be like Christ. You can give your life as a ransom for many. Um, and just to clarify, we don't serve God. We don't serve the church because they need it so bad, all right? We do it because, like, it gives us joy to serve. Seriously, God doesn't need you to serve him, but God will use your service to change you into the person he wants you to be from the inside out, making you more joyful. So, Bentry Church, hear my woe number five. You guys ready? Woe to you who say you live to serve, but who actually work to always get what you want. Woe to you who live for your own indulgence and comfort. Church, I implore you, live for Christ. Live to serve, live to give your life away, and I promise you, you will find life in him. Two more woes to go. Woe number six. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Well, number six is really simple. It's a warning to everyone that's pretending. People that live for likes on the Facebook and the gram, 
right? Um, there's a lot of pretenders out there. Um, there's a lot of people that profess to knowing God. They profess to having found the path to eternal life. They profess to having found the, the secret. But here's the deal. Heaven ain't filled with professors. It's filled with possessors. That is people that actually possess Christ. Those that know him, those that... Because the thing is, is those who know Christ, they know eternal life. And if you don't know Christ, you won't know eternal life. You can have all the righteous deeds and perfect speech. You can have a resume filled with amazing selfless accomplishments. You can give away all your money to the poor. You can live the perfect life on earth. But Jesus would call that a whitewashed tomb. Because it looks good from the outside, but on the inside, there's death. You can't pretend your way to heaven. God knows what's on the inside. So just to keep this woe simple and straightforward, do you have true life on the inside, in your heart, in your soul? If you don't know Christ, you don't know eternal life. If you don't have the Holy Spirit residing inside you, if you don't truly know God, if you don't have Christ, you don't have eternal life. And all the good things you do externally, it won't overcome the rebellion that rules inside your heart. And you won't live eternally with Christ. So woe number six. Woe to you who work so hard to present yourself as perfect to the outside world. Because inside your heart, you're filled with filthy, nasty, horribly self-centered thoughts. Woe to you who care more about what other people think than what God thinks of you. Woe number seven. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. In his final woe to the Pharisees, Jesus makes himself painfully clear. He dares them to murder him. He dares them to kill another prophet. He calls them out for their Jewish nationalism. They're thinking that they're somewhat exceptional because of their history and their pedigree, right? They had a claim that they, their literal claim, they wouldn't shed the blood of a prophet. But you guys realize just how ironic this is, right? Like they're actively plotting at this moment to kill Christ. And they're saying to themselves, oh, we never would kill a prophet. Really, really. They thought that they were on the right side of history, they thought that had they been alive with their ancestors, they would have been the one who fought for God's word. They wouldn't have compromised truth for convenience. They thought that they were somehow exceptional. But here's the deal. Here's the gospel truth. There's only one thing that makes any of us exceptional or different from the rest of humanity, and it's our relationship with Christ. Guys, this is a lie that so many of us fall into. We think that, oh, because of the way I am, the way I am, like I'm somehow exceptional. I'm born into a different humanity than everyone else around me. <laughs> guys, we think that just because we associate ourselves with certain heroes, certain dead guys, certain political affiliations or civic institutions, that we're better. We think that just because we attend like a certain school or cheer for a certain team, that those things make us exceptional and we got to stop lying to ourselves. My last question for you guys today, are you lying to yourself? The Pharisees, they were lying to themselves. They said, oh, we wouldn't kill another prophet. They thought, oh, we were righteous enough to judge the Son of God. They believed that they were in the right just because they were born into the right family. They had the right education, the right social status. And so, church, do you think you're all right just because of your actions, because of your associations or your affiliations? 
You've got to recognize that nothing can make you right with God except for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Guys, we think that we're better than the people that come before us. We think we're better than our forefathers. Come on, like, honestly, you like to think you're better than your parents, right? But here's the thing is we are just as depraved as any other human. And we all have the propensity within us to be just as sinful as any man that's ever walked the face of this earth. And it's only by the transformational radical grace of Jesus Christ that we can be anything different, all right? It's only by his lordship in our lives that we're set apart. And so we've got to realize like inside our DNA, we are hardwired from birth to be on the wrong side of history. And so I implore you, instead of being concerned about being on the right side of history, you need to get on the right side of his story. You see what I did there? The right side of history versus his story. It's only by our God-given relationship with Jesus that we can do anything different than what our sinful nature dictates. So my final woe for the day Woe to you that think you're different from the rest of us. Woe to you that think you're not as evil as your ancestors. Woe to you who look at history and think you're born into a different humanity. That's it. That's the seven woes that Jesus pronounced on the religious leaders. And now you see why they killed him. And you may have listened to me for the last 30 minutes and said, okay, like the bell thing was cute, but I'm not that bad, right? You may have answered positively to all those questions. Um, by the way, here are those questions. Um, I, I encourage you, uh, look at them this week in your D3 group. Um, ask yourself, uh, if you're going out to lunch with someone today after church, ask these questions, all right? Um, they're also in the Version Bible app if you want. Um, but here's the deal. These are my questions. Jesus asks a question. After all seven woes are done, he asks a question to end these seven woes. All right, go ahead. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 33. After all seven woes, Jesus asks a question. You guys see it? You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? There's his question. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Church, how do you answer that question? Seriously, if someone were to ask you, you know, Katie, what can I do to not go to hell? How would you answer them? Well, you might say something like, oh, if you just pray this prayer, or if you just try really hard to repent, but that doesn't work. None of those things will save you. If someone asks, how do I get myself out of hell? The gospel truth says this. There's nothing you can do to get yourself out of hell. Again, I'll say it again. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But what else does the gospel say? The gospel says that though you cannot save yourself, Jesus saves you. Amen? Salvation looks like this. Jesus transcends space and time and he comes into your heart and he makes you alive. He resuscitates your soul and, and you recognize when Jesus comes in, right, that you're a sinner. You did nothing to save yourself. In fact, you recognize everything you've done in your life has been self-serving and you start to realize just how amazing God's grace is and you're eternally grateful to the one who sacrificed himself for you. You realize you did nothing to save yourself from being condemned to hell because Jesus went through hell on this earth to take you to heaven with him. And of course, you'll trust Jesus with your whole life because he's the only hope for you in life and death. And when salvation has occurred, 
Your woe is me. I am so unworthy for I am a sinful man and I live amongst sinful people and my eyes have seen God. That woe turns into woe. My God is so good. His grace really is amazing because I saw how unrighteous I was. I saw how woeful my estate and he has forgiven me. In Christ, he lived for me, he died for me, and now he invites me to join him in resurrection life. Woe is an understatement. Let's pray. Jesus, our eyes go there to that place right now. Um, that place where you called Isaiah up um, into the temple. And when he realized that he was in the presence of the one holy God, he said, woe is me, I am ruined. For my eyes have seen the one true God and I'm a sinful man and I live amongst sinful people. I'm ruined. But God, what did you do? You took a coal from the fire and you touched it to his lips. And that's what you did for Isaiah and for us. You put Christ on a cross. So that when we saw ourselves, how unrighteous and unworthy we are, we could also see that the one who was righteous, who was worthy, was crucified for our sake. You died for us, Jesus. And in doing so, you atone for our sins, the insurmountable debt that we could not pay. And Jesus, we just take this moment right now to thank you. We thank you, God. And for any of these woes that have maybe landed with us kind of hard today, God, I pray that um, you would soften the blow, teach us your, your love, and help us to hear your correction for us. Show us which one of these maybe we need to wrestle with a little more. But God, we thank you that nothing can separate us from your love, your love that went to the cross, your love that died for us, your love that paid the price for our sins. And for anyone that this is new, anyone who's saying, I'm getting this now. I get how woeful my estate is. I implore you, believe on Christ and profess it. Confess it with your mouth, your need for him. Don't let a moment go by um, without telling someone your belief in God and his atoning sacrifice for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys got a cup when you came inside. Um, could actually, could one of you guys grab me a cup? I want to I I do this real quick. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that, bud. Um, so this, this cup, this bread we take. Thank you. Go ahead. Got it. Um, it's incredible. You think they've been doing this for 2,000 years in the church. What's something you do that people have been doing for 2,000 years? This tradition right here um, is something Jesus instituted himself at the very last supper, all right, with his disciples. Um, he's, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, guys, this is going to be my body broken for you. And he poured the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. 
And he encouraged the disciples that whenever they would break bread or drink from the cup, that they would do it in remembrance of him. So we're going to participate in this. And I just want to give you a few things before we do this. Um, the what. What is this? It's called communion. The how. All right. Um, how do we do this here at Bent Tree? We encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, to take, partake in communion with us. However, if you're not a follower of Christ, today's a great day to become one. All right. If you're not a follower of Christ, become one. Follow Christ with us, all right, and take communion with us. But if you're not, it's okay to sit back and watch what the church has done for 2,000 years. And lastly, what? It's communion. How? For believers. But why do we do this? Number one, we do it because God commanded us. But number two, it's because his sacrifice, the blood that was shed to purchase our redemption, it's worth remembering. The body that was broken so that we don't have to live broken lives, so we don't have... So we don't have to be broken. It was broken for us. So now let's take the bread. If Christ's body has been broken for you, I encourage you now to take this bread and do it in remembrance of him. And this cup. I like to hold it in my hands and I like to get really still. And if you get really still and you watch the reflections, you can kind of see your heartbeat pulsing in that water or in that juice. And I do that because it's a reminder that this is where my life is found. Without the atoning sacrifice of Christ, I am nothing, I'm condemned. And all those woes are going to come upon me. But in Christ, I stand not condemned, right? For the Son of God came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Drink in remembrance of him. Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood for us. Thank you for breaking your body for us. It was love that held you up on that cross. Thank you for your love for us. You so love the world that you gave yourself that anyone that would believe in you would have eternal life and never perish. We thank you for this life right now. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Would you- Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit bentreechurch.com.